hello there. You're listening to I Love This, You Should Too, a podcast with hosts Indy Randawa and hello. Samantha Hees. Hello. <laughs> uh, we are here on this cold, cold, snowy day in January as we uh, get together to discuss Pan's Labyrinth. Yes, it is crazy cold out. So we are in Edmonton, Canada, and it's like 40 below or something out. Or for those of you who aren't sure if that's Fahrenheit or Celsius, first one and then the other. We've hit both of them. It's cold out. But we are here all snuggled in in our podcasting studio. And by studio, I mean kitchen kitchen table. table. (laughs) And we're going to talk about the 2006 Guillermo del Toro film, Pan's Labyrinth. So this is one that I had only seen maybe once in theaters, but I remembered really liking it. So I told Sam that she has to see it and that she is going to love it because that's kind of the title of the show. Is that the point of the show? Yeah, because I love it. And really, you should too. I get it now. That's, yeah, that's it. That's all coming for a little circle. I've been approaching this the wrong way. <laughs> you have. You've been bringing <laughs> movies that you didn't even like to me and be like, yeah, this was all right. What'd you think? Like, no, that's not the name of the podcast. That's for our other podcast. This is all right. What did you think? <laughs> when we just talk about movies that are mm, fine. It's fine. Yeah. Or that we really hate. Oh, that's, I hate this. What happened here? That's a different one. <laughs> Where we talk about body of evidence. That's that really pornographic Madonna movie I was watching the other day. I walked into the living room and it was just Madonna masturbating just in a film. Yeah, that that happens in this movie. But we'll actually talk about that at another point because we're going to have this whole big special thing coming up. Okay. Okay, here's a little teaser. I'm not going to tell you too much, but Star Wars. Not yet. It's coming. We'll let you know. But let's go back to... The point we are here today, Pan's Labyrinth. I loved it. Did you? I'm going to reserve that until the end. Till the end? Yeah. I'm not Haven't quite you been sh- on the show before? No, I'm just not quite sure where I stand on it until we talk about it. What? Yeah. Wait, how can you not know where you stand on it? You I sigh. like it. It's, I like it quite a bit. I'm just not sure if I loved it. Okay, but it's a thumbs up. It's a thumbs up right now. Okay, I'll take that. And then I'll convince you through the next... Eh, 45 minutes to an hour about why you should love it. Yes. We've been going long a lot. There's a lot of one hour plus episodes, which is surprising to me. Listeners, if you hate that, please email us and let us know. <laughs> I think maybe just I hate it because I have to edit it. Yeah. And whenever we have a 30 minute like in between episode, I'm so happy because I can get it done in like two, three days. <laughs> but anyways, let's talk about Pan's Labyrinth. So yes. this came out in 2006 and at the time, there was this kind of um, emergence of Mexican directors. There's three of them who are, from what I can tell, like very good friends, too. And even if not good friends, they're very supportive of each other. It's not any sort of rivalry. They're really trying to bring each other up. And in 2006, I'd argue that maybe three of the best movies in the world were made by these three directors. Who are these guys? So um, Guillermo del Toro did Pan's Labyrinth in yes. 2006. And Alfonso Cuaron did Children of Men. Okay. Did you ever see that? No, but I've heard of him and I've heard of Children of Men. We are going to do that movie on this at one point because I think it's one of the most underrated movies like 
in modern history. Oh, interesting. From something that was still mainstream that people could see. I don't know why this didn't get wider recognition. It's just brilliant. Crazy. And then um, Alejandro González Inaratu did uh, Babel. Which oh, I saw Babel. I didn't love as much as those other two, but it was a very good movie. I did a review on it oh. for the student newspaper at my university. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. I loved doing the movie reviews because it meant that I had like an excuse to go see a movie in the middle of the day. So really, we always approach this that like I'm the textbook clinical dissector and you're like the populist of like, oh, this is good. You have more training to be a film critic than I do. <laughs> not really. Not really. But, but you've done it. But I've done it. I yes, have I have. So therefore, you're, you are the real critical mind of this true. podcast. True. Yeah, but so not true. <laughs> start, start doing it. <laughs> Uh, we'll see. Yeah, and those three all did really good movies that year. Most of them were not, didn't get a lot of success that mm -hmm. year, but it was definitely breakouts. And they've all done things that have been nominated for Best Picture or even won. Inyaratu did Birdman, which I think won Best Picture, and The Revenant after that. Oh, yeah. Quaron did, well, Itumama Tambien was way before him, but that was very widely loved. And he went on to do Gravity and Roma. Mm -hmm. And Del Toro won his Oscar not too long ago for Best Picture in Shape of Water. Oh, yeah. So these three guys came up together and like have really hit the top of the filmmaking world. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that, too, because um, Hollywood has enough old white men. Yeah, let's get some old <laughs> Mexican men in there. <laughs> let's get some, like... Diversity. Diversity. Because even not just for the sake of saying, like... Well, it's too much of one sort of thing and people aren't getting a chance, which is a very legitimate point. It is. But the more diverse stories you get, the better stories you're going to get. Exactly. And the more original scripts. Diversity in the arts is just a win-win situation. Exactly. But anyways, we'll get back to uh, Pan's <laughs> Labyrinth. So it takes place in the aftermath of the Spanish Civil War. And I was worried that we would need more of a history lesson, but really in that opening title, it kind of gives you... They did a pretty good job, and it wasn't, like, it wasn't really deep with the history. It did a really good job of just being like, this is where they are. It's very isolated, um, so you don't need to know what's happening, like, largely in other places in Spain. And so this was really nice because you just had your little insular world and you didn't need to know like all the particulars of like who's who and who works for what and what they did. And so it it was nice. Yeah, I think all that really matters in it is the fascists are in control and there are rebels. Yes. And that's really all you need for this movie. Yes. Of course, you could look at how this movie plays into the ideas of the Spanish Civil War and like extrapolate from that. But to get an appreciation of the movie you don't really need all of that no and i appreciate that because i don't like having to read a textbook before watching a movie so do you want to give maybe a really quick summary of the plot of this movie sure and of course like in all of these big reviews spoilers all over the place so really just go watch this movie it's fantastic you won't regret it all the spoilers Okay, so um, there is a little girl and her mother, and her mother has married a high-powered general. Um, captain, I believe. Captain? Oh, wait. I thought I he thought, was a general. Or was it his dad is the general? Because I think that was a point that he's not quite to the level that his father was. Captain Vidal? Capitan? Generalissimo? 
<laughs> I'm not sure. Okay, um, either way, a high-ranking officer. Yes, and he is very powerful, and he is um, probably one of the few people in the country who has lots of resources. Um, he may not be, like, super rich, but he has access to everything that he could ever want. So this woman um, does what I feel like a lot of women did back then and goes and marries the highest-powered man that she could find. Um, just to save herself and her daughter yeah, and make sure that they don't starve to death. Husband had passed away. Yes, and uh, so single women in that time, I feel like, didn't have a really good. So she did what she had to do to make sure her daughter didn't struggle the way she probably did. Mm-hmm. Um, they move into the uh, house of this new man, and it's her... like an old mill. It's more of a, a base for the army than yes, it is a yeah. working house. But they have set it up like they a have house. set it up like a house. You do definitely see um, that this house has been really hastily moved into, and that the staff in the house are very much um, trying to make it as homey as possible for um, these two uh, women who are coming in, or this woman and this little girl, yeah, um, who are coming Carmen in. and Ophelia. Ophelia. And she happens to discover a labyrinth, which takes her to a magical world on the uh, grounds of this old mill. And uh, this magical world kind of takes her on a journey where uh, the creatures in this world believe that she's a long-lost princess. And she has to kind of go through all the trials and um, tasks put forward by this magical creature that she meets um the fawn the fawn and uh eventually uh she passes the trials and tribulations but at the same time while all of the magical stuff is happening there's a lot of real stuff happening um and her life is uh quite depressing and very uh sad um and then she has this magical world to escape to so it was kind of neat uh, to have that parallel. Yeah, I think that's really at the heart of this movie, the the juxtaposition of this harsh reality with this fantastic world, mm-hmm. which is frightening much of the time, but still it seems like that's where she can like hope for more and be free. Yes. Because there's this idea that she's actually this long-lost princess and she can live a happy life and not just be kind of living at the will of... Uh, terrible man yes especially after her mother dies yes and then she seems to have almost no hope and she really does kind of throw herself into this magical world in order to kind of escape and have a place where she's wanted and needed what are some of the things that jumped out at you in this movie uh maybe visually to start off visually because it's a really pretty movie to look it's a at. gorgeous movie um i really liked how um almost bleak the house and like her real life was it was very like grays and browns it wasn't very magical um and there was very bare bones almost yeah everything that's in reality seems like it's shot through a blue filter yes everything is just blue and gray and you get very little kind of organic color through it yes and then when she goes down into the labyrinth, then we start seeing some browns, some bright greens. And when she goes into the fantasy realm, that's where you see the real vibrant colors of yeah. reds and a lot of really rich golds. Everything shot in a warmer tone. Yes. And it was very interesting um, when she'd kind of go into the magical realm. And then when she came out, it was a very stark, sudden change mm-hmm. in the colors. And like when she crawls out of the tree from getting the key from the frog... 
when she crawls outside, instantly it's raining again and it's muddy and gray and awful and she's back to like her regular life. Yes. And she noticed like way at the end when she goes into the labyrinth for the very last time with her little brother, we start to see the sun, I think, rising or setting. I'm not sure. But it's gold in the real world for the very first time. Yes. Kind of showing that these two worlds are finally coming together. And we also see the fawn above the ground and worlds are colliding and she kind of transfers from one world to the next at that point as well. Yes. Um, I did enjoy how seamlessly uh, this movie kind of moved between the fantasy and the reality. There was no, there was no device that really took her from one place to another. Um, kind of like like in Harry Potter with platform nine and three quarters. Yeah, there's no big plot There's like, you have to go through the wall in order to get there. She kind of moved from world to world very seamlessly, and I like that. Yeah, it's like saying that there are all of these worlds, but there's a blend of them. It's not a hard border from one to the next. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about that more later, but I think there's a a definite separation between the natural world, the man-made world, and then that supernatural world as well. So we get a narrator at the beginning telling us the story of Princess Moana who came to Earth from her kingdom and because of the sunlight or something, she forgot her past and she eventually dies. Right. Where is this story coming from? I don't know. So we see her reading books. Is she reading the story? Yeah, I don't know. I don't really understand who the narrator is is yeah is that just a truth of this world that everybody knows this story we don't have any idea for that so that kind of really sets up this whole fantasy element as not exactly trustworthy we don't know where it's coming from i don't know if that's a fact of the world or something that she's created herself or that she was just reading because it shows that she's reading these fantasy books and her mom is very dismissive of them and her uh her kind of stepfather is even more so yes um i loved the kind of the feeling of wonder that uh she had in this movie it was very much um like when we grow up and we forget all of that like fantastical like hope that children have and it felt like because this world was so harsh and there was the war going on and they had to probably her mom had to grow up really quickly because she needed to marry and she needed to find a husband who could support her and then she had Ophelia and then suddenly she had no time at all for any of that and I feel like Ophelia is still very much grounded in the uh, like fantastical feeling of childhood yes yeah that's the separation there's the childhood and fantasy with her there's the natural world with her mother and then the man-made world with uh, Captain Vidal yes (laughs) one thing that I found really interesting um, and very obvious uh, was how bold the sound effects were it was very much like a little kid hearing things that they may not have heard before so like um anytime captain vidal moved there was this leather on leather kind of sound even though i was really confused because he doesn't really have any leather on leather like he has leather boots right which could be making that noise but it kind of sounded like um when someone wears like a leather jacket oh and your arms kind of move against the leather and it makes that like creaking squeaky sound um, so I, it was sound effects like that that were very much um, – they kind of described uh, what that person was like. So like the leather on leather sound, it's not a very nice sound. Yeah, or even more so maybe what they mean to 
the protagonist to yes. Ophelia. Yeah. Because she sees him as like this kind of authoritative, scary figure. So that probably is a, an effective sound effect to go with that. And I liked that they continued it throughout the entire movie. Um, even when Ophelia wasn't in the scene. So, like, when he's shaving, it's a very, very, like, oh, yes. loud sound effect um, of, like, a almost like a, like a sword sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was, like, in the kitchen, the chopping was all very loud. And these are things that, like, a kid would hear that adults might not even, like, like, I don't think about the noise that I'm making when I'm chopping in the kitchen. But it's, like, a child, that may be the only thing that they notice that really loud chopping noise on a chopping board. So I liked that because it really did make you feel like you were seeing it through the eyes of a child. And I think it's also really effective that it was a low fantasy. Do you know the term like low fantasy versus high fantasy? I was going to say, you said this to me in the car the other day. Um, can you explain to me what like a low so versus low high? fantasy is a movie like this where it's grounded in a world that we recognize. Yes. So in this one, it's pretty much our world. It's history. It's the earth that we recognize that has all the same rules, but there are these fantastic elements that are kind of creeping into it. High fantasy would be something more like Lord of the Rings, where it's a completely fantastic world and it's something different than us. So mm-hmm. if you want to say like, oh yeah, there's magic everywhere, we just go like, yes, that's this world. Yes. While the low fantasy, I tend to like those movies a lot better because we get to see the effect of little fantastic elements mm-hmm. on our world. Yes. And people of this world interacting with it, I think is a lot more interesting. And it lends to what you were saying about her kind of childlike wonder, and that's how she's attached yes, to it. Yes, yeah. And it really does a good job of remembering that our protagonist is only like, how old was she? Like 10? 11, 11? Yeah, somewhere around so there. So it reminds you that you're not watching this as an adult. You're watching this as a child. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they do a really good job of keeping you grounded in that while you're watching all three kind of universes that exist in this film. Yeah, let's talk about those three universes. Because okay. this is kind of my big uh, thesis almost for this movie. So you have uh, Carmen, the mother, and she's very representative of the natural world. So she is pregnant. We get a lot of, we even see inside her womb at one point. So that's kind of the world that she occupies. And it's also a very female feminine world yes this movie definitely has a separation between the masculine and the feminine and for the most part the feminine is very nurturing and good and the masculine is very harsh and violent and cold Mm -hmm. and that's uh captain vidal is the man-made world right and he's often shown he's he's obsessed with his watch which is full of gears And he sits at his table with the gears of the mill behind him, almost Mm. showing that he's inside a big watch himself. Yes. And he's obsessed with all these rules and regulations and the laws of man, not the laws of nature. So he was very representative of the cold, masculine, man-made world. And then Ophelia is kind of belongs to that supernatural world. Or at least she's trying to go into that world. She's trying to. And so she is neither... The masculine nor the feminine, but almost like the child. Yes. Like kind of in the middle where she hasn't gone too far either way. She's definitely more on the feminine side, but she has less to do with that, um, the maternal world like her mother does, mm-hmm. but rather this innocence and the sense of fantasy and a link to the supernatural. Yes. I really appreciated how she was like, how she was existing in this fantasy world she's existing in the real world she's existing in that like middle world where her mother is um but she was just a little girl she wasn't magic 
she wasn't doing anything. Like, she didn't have superpowers or, um, like, any kind of, like, advanced knowledge. She was literally just a little girl doing things that, like, a little girl, like, getting her dress dirty yes. and, like, getting caught in the rain and getting her shoes muddy. Like, she did little girl things while she was doing these, like, fantastical tasks i guess um and i i liked that they didn't make her like a wizard or yes. like oh p.s you're a princess who has magical powers it's like she was just a normal girl and she had to prove herself to become this princess and that occupied her for it but if she had just been a regular person she could have been any little girl in spain mm -hmm. yeah i love that so much more because I read a lot of uh, YA fiction for work and the idea of there's just some beaten down little girl or little boy and then, oh, they have all these powers and they can do anything they want. And I'm just very tired of that. It can be super effective. Like there's Star Wars and Harry Potter and they're both great and brilliant and yeah. I love those. But I'm very tired of it. So I loved having a little girl who has this fantastic element to her. But she has to work for it. And mm -hmm. at a lot of the time, we question, like, is there anything special about her? And yeah, she's not immediately special because they think she's a princess. And nobody treats her differently or, like, does anything specifically differently. And that fantasy part doesn't seep into the real world yes. very much. And she doesn't really get any benefit from the knowledge that she may be some princess. No. In fact, it's really difficult for her because she has to try to prove it. And she doesn't prove her worthiness by some sort of magical ability that just she happens to get mm -hmm. with no effort she really earns it and it it's through makes her, her life harder first yeah and it's through her strength of character that she's able to uh, achieve whether or not we think she really does or not her um her destiny and be able to become this princess of the underworld or whatever and meet her true family or yeah. whatever because she's already lost her family mm -hmm. at that point in the movie and so i feel like it could go two ways, that final scene um, with the king and the queen and, like, her and the court. I think it could either be her fantasy world as she's dying or it could be, like, she died and got transported to this new place. Yeah, I think maybe we should save that for the end because I think that is a huge conversation on whether or not any of this fantasy stuff exists. Yeah. Do you separate the ending from... The rest of the movie where the fantasy takes place, do you think it was real in the movie, but at the end, maybe it was or maybe it was not? I don't know. I, I found the ending very, like, ambiguous. Like, it was really kind of neat to be able to go either way. Mm -hmm. I remember very early on, maybe in the first episode, I said, you know what? You're going to be getting a lot of ambiguous endings. And you're like, no, I hate that. But I think you're coming around on them. I kind of liked this one because, yeah, it really did make you – it made you think after. And yes. it made you – like, it stuck with me. And I was kind of thinking about it the next day at work and how it could be either way. And it kind of, like, both endings kind of make you feel good because she died – thinking about something that like made her happy mm -hmm. or she died and was taken to this place that would make her happy okay should we table it for now and sure. come back to that at the end because we can have a whole big thing because this movie i think above maybe all else it's a movie about disobedience yes and the movie itself kind of refuses to be one way or the other it's just saying like we're gonna put these things here you do what you want mm -hmm. let's talk about some of the characters so we talked about ophelia Yes. I actually think maybe the most interesting character is Captain Vidal, the um, the villain. 
He's a really interesting one. He to is. Me. He is. Did you like his performance? I did. Um, in that it made me really dislike him. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He was terrible, and up to that line of like a mustache twirling villain. Yes. But not quite there. He not was never like campy or cheesy. Or comical. Yeah, but he was terrifying. He was terrifying. And it was kind of almost in his stillness and subtlety that was especially scary. Yes. I was saying how the violence in this movie is going to be disturbing. It was very disturbing, but it seemed to fit well with the story and um, kind of the environment. Yeah. And if I were to tell somebody the terrible, violent things that happen in this, they would be like, oh, that doesn't sound bad at all. But how it's shot, one thing, because it's shot a very graphic, nothing being disguised sort of way. And because it's there's so few and far between violent acts, they all stand out. Like there's that one point where he hits a man with a wine bottle. Yes. Which sounds not so bad compared to all of the movies we see where people are just like gunned down in the streets and it's no yeah. big deal. But oh my god, is it brutal. Yes. I um I really think that while the violence was very hard to watch, it's a movie that is set in a active war yeah war zone and i think that that really helps drive home just how dangerous the real world is for ophelia and how incredible it is that she has this other life that she's living absolutely every time she wandered away from the mill i was like i feel like you shouldn't be wandering around in an active war zone Mm -hmm. where people are like literally shooting and there's like gun battles going on and you're just wandering off to find a tree yeah and in the end Well, I guess we'll talk about that when we get to the whether it's real or not. But the idea of how is this fantasy world of hers any more bizarre and far-fetched than the life she actually lives? Mm -hmm. Like, both of them seem like they shouldn't be real, but perhaps both of them are. Perhaps one's a coping mechanism. True. So Vidal is pretty much our only male lead. There's uh, Mercedes' brother, but he doesn't really do too much. So Mm -hmm. Vidal is our male lead. He takes a very um, authoritarian, masculine role in this movie, uh, and to like a great extent. So he just has control over all of the women in this movie. He's telling Mercedes what to do. He's pretty much dictating Ophelia's life to her. Yes. And his husband, Carmen, he pretty much uses just to produce babies. Yes. Like, there's no affection there. My son. And he even says at one point, like, if... It comes to it during childbirth, save my son. Yes. Yeah, he doesn't care about his wife. He cares about his male lineage. Yes. And that's about it. And that's all. Which really does drive home that villain aspect, right? And he's so confident that like, no, I'm having a son. Yeah. And when he's that confident, I'm like, okay, I believe you. Mm -hmm. I didn't question it. I didn't think he was having a daughter for a second. No. It seems like he's so masculinely confident. And that sounds like it could be a good thing, but it's not. It's not. That's very much like toxic masculinity right there. (laughs) Yeah, so much. (laughs) And the first time we meet him, you get a sense of it, but in a way where you're not quite sure because Carmen arrives and he says, sit in this wheelchair. And she's like, no, I'm fine. And he's, no, sit in this wheelchair. Sit in the wheelchair, yeah. And you think maybe he's looking out for her, but then you just realize that he has to control everything. Yes. Especially the, the feminine elements in this movie. And I like how Ophelia asks at one point, like, why did you have to get married? And it is really a have to. Mm-hmm. It's like, why does one have to get married? Yes. And it seems like less of a question for her mother specifically and more like, 
why does this exist? Mm-hmm. It's almost like a questioning of uh, Spain at the time. Like, why do we have to do this? Why are women in this role? And she's starting to see all of that for the first time. And mm-hmm. she's trying to, because she's one of those characters who's not quite just like a little child. If she was six, it would be one thing. But the fact that she's 11 mm-hmm. or so, she's starting to become aware of these male and female roles around the household. And we're seeing like, the biggest, most archetypal examples right in front of her yes. with uh, Vidal and Mercedes and Carmen. Yeah. And of course, this movie relies a lot on fairy tales, but kind of the original fairy tales, the ones that are mm-hmm. scary and cautionary tales. Very much, yeah. And Vidal is like the reversal, the gender reversal of the wicked stepmother, because there's what could be more frightening to a child than first losing a parent and yes. then that parent being replaced by like some sort of monster. Yeah. In this case, like pretty much a literal monster. He is He's pretty much a literal horrible. monster. Yeah, he doesn't – there is no warm fuzzy. He's very much um, like cold and standoffish to her from the beginning. Um, like when she goes to put her hand out to shake his hand – Oh, yeah. He's like, mm, that's the wrong hand. He just grabs it yeah. and says, that's the wrong hand. Not like, oh, that's the wrong hand and switching it up. Yeah. yeah even the way he looks, it kind of um, exudes this classic machismo and the this fascist military uniform that he has. Mm-hmm. And he's always just immaculately put together. Yes, and shaved and like... Yeah, more linking him with that kind of man-made world that he yeah. represents. Yes. And I like the the doctor in the movie says people like you only obey for the sake of obeying Mm -hmm. and that kind of underscores it too that he's just part of this world and doesn't really have any sort of real mind yeah or like autonomy Mm -hmm. he can't really he can't really make decisions for himself because it seems like he was very much born into this life and i'm sure his father wasn't a nice man well that's um there's a big link with him and his father right because there's the story about when his father died he smashed his watch to show his son, how a real man dies. You die yes. on the battlefield and this is when I died. And Vidal is just so kind of stoic and hardcore about everything when he's brought up with this fact, which is clearly true because he holds on to that watch all the time. Yes, and he makes sure it works and he winds it and he takes very good care of it. And he says like, no, that never happened. He never had a watch. Because he just won't show the slightest bit of humanity in front of anyone else. No. And I love that when he is finally getting his comeuppance and he's about to die, when the rebels take over, he says, give this watch to my son, let him know how he, how I died. And Mercedes just like, no, you're not getting that. You're not getting any sort of victory. He won't even know your name. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the biggest defeat that Videl could ever have, just to die namelessly and anonymously like Yes, that. exactly. And in the middle of nowhere where nobody's going to know what happened. Yeah, because he has such pride in having a violent death yes. and what it stands for. And at the end, I think Del Toro is kind of saying like, no, war, it's not for anything. No. Like, there's no winners and losers. Everyone, you just, you're all dead in the same way. Exactly. Yeah. And it's not like anyone is there to be a historian to write everything down and to like tell those stories in the future mm-hmm. um they, they, yeah you literally die doesn't matter if you're a general or a rebel or a kitchen maid it doesn't matter we all die the same way yeah alone <laughs> 
Um, it's really interesting, though, that didn't, they didn't make him a sexual villain. No. So often, I feel like that's shorthand and lazy writing where yes. we need this guy to be bad. Okay, just have him rape someone. Mm-hmm. And first of all, you're just throwing rape around like it's nothing. Yes. Which is terrible in one sense. And that's just, it's such lazy writing and it's so overused and it kind of diminishes what's actually something that's truly terrible Mm -hmm. because it's just used in whatever like oh yeah they raped someone no big deal yeah we know they're bad and it's only done to serve the villain's characterization yes which i i really hate when that's done in movies so i like that they didn't make him like that but made him more like a fairy tale villain almost yes so what did you think of our other kind of villains almost so we have the frog toad creature i think you could say that that's a sort of villain what did you think of that scene I don't like crawly, slimy things. So giant toad is like really on my no list. Um, However, it was very fitting in that um, the toad is this like thing she has to overcome and he's stopping this tree from going. And so by overcoming that, she left her mark on the world. Mm-hmm. I think at the end they talk about that and you can see kind of the tree flowering and becoming um, like viable again. Yes. And uh, I found that whole scene very gross. The idea that she crawled through this tiny little tunnel and is all muddy and has bugs crawling all over her. Um, very like hard to watch. <laughs> yeah. So I think the natural elements can be swapped back and forth and – the villains can also be the same way. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, I think Vidal can be represented by the frog and the tree is her mother. So the tree, if you see how it's curved, it's very uh, ovarian looking. Yes, it is. And the, <laughs> With the two big like sticky pointy things. Yes. And, like, just the way that it's become this shell of like a skeleton almost. And I definitely don't think I'm just like projecting that i think that was very intentionally done yeah and the crawling into it is very vaginal and birth-like yes as well. like the birth canal <laughs> yeah if you look at the cover of the criterion edition blu-ray of this it's very clear that the tree has a vagina yeah yeah so in that sense the frog is leading to the the death of this tree it's consuming it's just taking what it wants and it's not caring about the tree Mm -hmm. in the same sense vidal is taking what he wants from carmen the mother Mm -hmm. taking the son and leaving her to die yes and the parallels go on a little bit more because ophelia kind of poisons the frog by tricking it to eat those stones that were going to kill it yeah and she also poisons Vidal by sneaking something into his drink as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think there are definitely a lot of parallels between those two. Yeah. And I liked that, um, like, later in the movie, there is a lot of parallels um, between her fantasy life and the real life. And you really have to, like, kind of think about them because mm-hmm. I feel like that's something that could really pass you by if you're not, like, kind of critically thinking while you're watching this movie. Yeah. There's a lot of analogous things like... Uh, Mercedes really needs that key to the storage room. Mm-hmm. And right after that, Ophelia has to go on a quest to find the golden key that's going to open something she doesn't know what. Yes. Well, we can talk about the other big villain who's often called the Pale Man. And that's the one with the hands that have eyeballs in it. Yes. I've seen him, like, just pictures of him before. It's terrifying. It was it? terrifying. That was... um probably the creepiest part of the movie yeah it's such a good 
character design. All of the creatures in this, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they won the Oscar for makeup and effects like that. Oh, right. And because it's not done CG, it's a man in a suit. Right. It's actually the same man. Uh, the pale man and the fawn, it's Doug Jones in there. Oh, so he played both. Yes. Doug cool. Jones is like a brilliant actor for physical stuff like that. Uh-huh. Now he's on um, Star Trek Discovery, but he's in every Del Toro movie, any monster it's, it's pretty much Doug Jones much a in a suit. Costume actor. <laughs> yeah, he's very tall and very thin, so oh, he can do that kind of stuff really right. well. Right. So it's easy to kind of transform him into mm-hmm. something crazy like that. Yes. I'm pretty sure he was the sea creature in Shape of Water as well. Oh, cool. Actually, I don't know that. I just assume he is because <laughs> it's Doug Jones. Yeah. But yeah, that villain, the Pale Man, is such a good design, so scary. And you can link that one to Vidal as well because the dining room that he's sitting at looks exactly like the dining room that Vidal is sitting at. Mm -hmm. And they're both uh, consumers, right? We already talked about how Vidal's consuming Ophelia's mother, consuming all of this food while everyone else is starving. Uh Similarly, the pale man has all of this food that he doesn't really need. And there's all these other hungry people. They're all about consumption. Yes, I, uh, I see that. And it was Doug Jones in The Shape of Water. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he is really tall and skinny and kind of creepy looking. But if you look at him in all of the different costumes he's been in, you would he's flawless. And he's a very good actor because a lot of the time he talks and emotes through this makeup. And that's not an easy thing to do. No. And he's very physical. And mm-hmm. I think that especially with the um, the pale man, mm-hmm. I think that really um, like helped him because he like acted through every fingertip even and it was very he really does. it was very um convincing and it really like you would not have known that he was both of those two characters so there's a lot of pretty easy lines to draw between like the tree is the mother because it used to house all these fantastic beings mm-hmm. but carmen used to house ophelia things like that are pretty straightforward but the one that always gave me a lot of trouble was the fawn itself mm-hmm because he is neither good nor evil. Yeah, there are definite moments where he's very, very good. And there's definite moments where he seems quite evil. When you don't know the ending, watching through it, did you feel like the fawn was tricking her and was going to kill the son? There were moments where it felt very much like he was serving his own agenda. Um, like he did seem like he was there to help her at some points, but at the same time at other points it seemed like he was there for himself so that he could go back to the kingdom or wherever. And there were points where I was kind of like, is this like is he tricking her? Is he just using her to get back to wherever he needs to go? Or is he um, like actually helping and he just has a very odd um kind of personality to go with it yeah because he's definitely threatening yes he seems scary i felt on edge anytime ophelia was alone with him because i thought this thing could just kill her Mm -hmm. and we're not sure if this whole story is true or if the fawn is even of that kingdom Mm it could just be some other villain that because it really sets it up to look like it's been using her to get all these things and eventually to get the, yes. this new baby. Yeah. I think ultimately what the fun represents isn't a good or evil, a natural or supernatural, because he's a blend of those two, because he's, of course, of that supernatural world, but yeah. he's covered in like moss and things, and he seems like he's coming out of the ground. Yeah. Especially early on, 
He gets younger as the movie goes on. Does he gets less creaky. At the beginning, he's all dusty and creaky and kind of falling apart. It did seem like at the beginning of the movie when she gets down into the um, like the bottom of the stairwell mm-hmm. there, um, it does seem like he almost comes out of the rocks or yeah. like separates himself from the rocks. Yeah, he's a, a strange one. But I think ultimately what he represents is... Not the good or the evil, but a choice between them. Mm-hmm. He is just kind of neutral and there and is more there for Ophelia to make those choices. Because the first time she disobeys by eating the grape and then all of those fairies get eaten because of it. Yes. So she disobeyed direct orders. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it seems like this movie is about like, you know what? You have to listen to the rules. Yeah. But ultimately, it's not that at all. It's quite the opposite because... The fawn says, oh, give me the brother and give me the knife. Yes. And at that point, Ophelia says, like, no. And she stands up to him and said, you promised that you were going to listen to me for whatever I said. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't. But rather than this being the terrible thing she does, this is what she's ultimately rewarded for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess what I was going back to is that the film is one of disobedience. Our heroes, our rebels... And she ultimately, with this one final rebellious act, kind of secures her spot in like a heaven-like place. Yeah. So this movie tells you, don't follow the rules. Rebel. And you will go to heaven. I guess. It's very confusing. and It's a very different message than we're used to yeah. in that regard. And it's not terribly clear all the time. No. But I think disobedience is really at the heart of this movie. Because or else, why would it be here? Why mm-hmm. are there rebels outside of the doors? Why is the villain a representative of a fascist dictator and she gets rewarded for rebelling in the end i feel like the movie also leaves you to make your own kind of decision about that like did she get rewarded or did her rebelling get her killed and she just needs to think about this happy place in order to go peacefully very true should we get into whether (laughs) things are real or not sure (laughs) so definitely i think we can say that it's not clear 100% either way. Mm -hmm. There's good arguments to fall on either side of if any of this fantasy stuff was actually there or not. Yes. Where do you fall? I think that by fully releasing herself or being released from the real world, she got to go to like the magical world forever. And you think that there is an actual magical world? I think so. What do you think? So Del Toro himself came out and said, yes, she goes to this magical kingdom. Yes, she is Princess Moana. Oh, interesting. But he also is like a really talented filmmaker and realizes what he's doing and says like, it's very easy to read both sides of it. And I'm not going to tell anyone what to take away from it. Yeah. And I tend to be the person that wants to believe that like, yeah, all this fantasy was real, but I don't think I do. No, you don't. I think these are delusions of a very troubled child. Yeah. Because what are fairy tales, really? At their essence, like, original fairy tales are designed to help children comprehend the brutal world around them. Yes. It's kind of a fun-ish way to tell you, like, don't go places with strangers. Mm -hmm. And we tell you this by having a, a wolf eating up a girl. And really the lesson is, like, oh, don't go running around in the woods at night. And those are lessons people need, but she is kind of making this fantasy world all for herself. Because there's all of those analogous structures, because there's a toad that represents her new father who is killing her mother, Mm -hmm. because there's so many parallels, it really seems to me like this is a 
child trying to internally rationalize all these things. And if this terrible, brutal world that she is in is real, why can't this fantastic world be real as well? Yeah. Both of them seem just as viable and... Of course, you would rather be in this fantastic world, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It totally makes sense that um, a child would come up with a world like that. Yeah. All of those villains and things that she can kind of control, it's kind of her way of coping with the real monster that she can't control in mm -hmm. her new father. Yes. And having her overcome the pale man and the toad, it's giving her some power or at least maybe the illusion of some power. Yes. I feel like children do that when they have no ability to affect change in their own lives. Um, that's when you retreat into imaginary friends or um, like fantastical worlds like that. Yeah, I really, I really want it to be true. But at the very end, she's dying and we go into her eyes and we see this fantasy world mm -hmm. or perhaps real underworld, but either way, a fantastic looking place Yes, where she's happy. Her mother is there. Her father is there. Everything she wants is right there. Mm -hmm. And if it ended there, I might be like, yeah, that's what she did. She did all of the tasks. She proved she's worthy. And now she's there. But the movie goes back one more time and it ends with her laying there in the mud. Yeah. Just showing us again, like, we all die the same. Mm -hmm. If you're an innocent girl, if you're a dictator, we all die the same. <laughs> That's so depressing. It really is. That's kind of where I ended up on it. Uh -huh, interesting. I think I choose to believe kind of the nice ending. I'm glad. <laughs> that's that's a better ending. It's That's a beautiful way that she gets rewarded for all of her, her sacrifice and her hard work. Yes. But. And I think I like that. I think it makes me feel a little bit better after such a brutal movie. Does it matter? No. Either way, it's real to her. Yes. So if she finds solace in this idea that's fake that she believes, or if she actually goes to this place, it doesn't matter. No. And I kind of, like I said at the beginning of the episode, I think I'm good with either story. Like, I'm good with either outcome. And... I think I lean a little bit more towards the fact that, yes, she becomes a princess in the end. Mm -hmm. But I, I can see how either outcome is valid. Because there is the shot where Vidal comes in and she's talking to the fawn, but Vidal can't see the fawn. Yes. But that you could also read that he's of that masculine man-made world, that cold world that he just couldn't see something like that. While she's a child and she still has that link to the supernatural. And yes. she's of that world in her mind. In or maybe or in reality. Technically, yeah. So, yeah, everything can go both ways like that. Mm -hmm. But in the end, I kind of take, like, it doesn't matter. The distinction is completely irrelevant because to Ophelia, both of these worlds are tangibly happening to her. Yes. And both are equally frightening and terrifying and dangerous. And both are kind of just outside of her immediate understanding. And she's going to be able to come to terms with that kind of thing soon. But mm -hmm. she's at that place in her life where she doesn't understand either. She's kind of lives at the whim of the adults in the um, like the so-called real world. Yes. And she has to do whatever the fawn tells her and doesn't have any idea about that fantasy world either. So she's truly a child, just kind of living based on what other people tell her and maybe that reward at the end is because she finally takes control makes that choice 
and does the right thing in saving her brother. Absolutely. Wow. Great movie, huh? Don't you love it? I love it. Yes. (laughs) She loves it. Can we Can we turn the thing to yes? Oh, yeah. We'll take our patented um, I love this you should two box and it says the verdict is yep yep <laughs> I did I love this movie and I love the um, the ambiguousness of the ending mm-hmm. and how there was no way that if I went back and watched it again that I'd be like oh no this is clearly the ending yeah. if you go into it thinking one way yeah that's the way it's gonna look to you exactly yeah. there is so much evidence on either way your reading is much nicer, and I love that reading. I would prefer that reading, <laughs> yeah. but I just don't have it. I think because of that one last shot yeah. where it shows her dead, that's what that's what sealed it for that's me. That's what seals it for you. Yeah. Interesting. If I... it had ended with her on the throne, I'd be like, yep, that's where she is now. Yeah. But yeah, because they cut back to it, that's what brought me back. I don't agree. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm not going to argue that one. I think... Yeah, they're both equally valid. Yeah, and, and that's that's what I like. I said yeah. that's what I love about this movie is that you can have either opinion, and you can have so many arguments for why your opinion is right. But in the end, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, yeah. because it's real to her, and that's all that mattered. Yes. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end this. We both loved it. We both had different readings. Yes. But we're both happy with each reading. Yeah, I'm very happy with how that ended. I hope our listeners are just as happy in whatever camp they ended up in, Mm -hmm. or even if they're between the two camps. I hope that you're uh, happy with your reading. If you have other thoughts that maybe we didn't cover on the podcast, you can email us at I love this, you should, and the number two at gmail.com. You can tweet your thoughts or find us on Instagram um, at i-l-t-y-s and the number two or you can find us on facebook and post on our facebook wall at i love this you should do dash podcast we want to hear your thoughts on this this is a a really thought-provoking movie yeah and also what's your favorite del toro movie (laughs) this one is clearly mine but devil's backbone Ooh, so good a lot of people love that shape of water Mm. So are you excited to maybe see some more of his work now? I am, actually. I really enjoyed uh, the world that he creates, and I think that other stories would really benefit from that. Yeah, this is something we didn't really get into too much. But a Del Toro movie, I love them because you can look at it and go, that's Guillermo Del Toro. Mm -hmm. I kind of love the auteur directors, meaning like that they are truly the author of this film. Everything is in their style, and you can look at it and know who it is. Yes. I know there's a lot of great directors who are kind of seamless, and that's their kind of talent, but I love someone who has a very distinct style and brings that to whatever they do. Yes. And he's definitely one of those people. So Absolutely. Go check out his stuff. And we will see you next week, where Samantha is going to be bringing a new movie to me. It's my week. <laughs> will it be as good as Pan's Labyrinth? Who knows? Who knows? I think it's going to be a bit of a departure from Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, But I'm excited to see what you think of something that is very much a classic. Oh, a classic. Oh, I do like classics. Iconic. Iconic. Hmm. Yes. Very exciting. Well, join us next week. We'll see you then. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Let's keep going.